Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today we'll hear from Cairo on the talks between Israelis and Palestinians on the future of Gaza, and from Edinburgh on the state of the campaign ahead of next month's referendum on Scottish independence. But we begin in Iraq, where the dramatic advance of the jihadist group Islamic State, or ISIS, has brought the United States back into a military role in the country three years after the US withdrew its troops. US forces have been carrying out airstrikes against ISIS, and Washington announced this week that it has started directly arming Kurdish Peshmerga forces. Meanwhile in Baghdad, the president has named a new prime minister, Haider al-Abadi, to replace Nouri al-Maliki whose sectarianism has been widely blamed for the alienation of Iraq's Kurdish minority. So what is ISIS, and how has it succeeded in capturing territory the size of Great Britain in Iraq and Syria? I'm joined by Patrick Coburn, Middle East correspondent of the London Independent newspaper and the author of a new book, The Jihadis Return, ISIS and the New Sunni Uprising. From Cairo by Irish Times Middle East analyst Michael Jansen and here in studio by Irish Times columnist Paul Gillespie. Patrick Coburn, can I start with you? What exactly is ISIS and where did it come from? ISIS grew out of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which in turn was a very small group before the American invasion, uh, located in actually in Kurdistan, close to the border with Iran, but uh, very hostile to Saddam Hussein. But it then after the occupation in the Sunni community, Al-Qaeda suddenly found fertile ground to attack both the new, largely Shia government, and of course the American occupation. Uh, it was then, eventually the Sunni community split, Al-Qaeda became uh, in Iraq became weaker, but it never disappeared, and I think was probably biding its time. And the, but really, the real development has come since uh, 2010, 11. First of all, it got a new leader, Abu, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Uh, secondly, we saw the war start in Syria, and the Sunni community of Syria, the majority in Syria, uh, involved in this uprising. And what destabilized Syria uh, destabilized Iraq. I think that this is probably the greatest mistake of the outside world. Uh, Iraqi politicians at the time were saying to me, if this uh, war goes on in Syria, if the West backs the opposition, which is essentially a Sunni opposition, that this will uh, provoke a new civil war in Iraq because the Iraqi Sunni will join in, and this is destabilizing Iraq. Uh, this wasn't really taken seriously, but this was because the war in Syria and the uh, persecution of the Sunni minority in Iraq, that these two things combined to produce uh, uh, ISIS and um, the uh, support of a large part of the Iraqi Sunni community. Can you explain just something about how it operates? As you say, it operates both in Syria and in Iraq. And these campaigns reinforce one another. Absolutely. I mean, first of all, they're successful. And for this type of army, it's, you know, it's tremendously appealing because they've won victories and they ascribe these victories to a divine intervention. And a lot of them believe this and a lot of Sunnis believe this. How come this small group, uh, you know, a few thousand men defeat the Iraqi army, 350,000 men? So they think this is a divine intervention. 
I think what makes ISIS so effective is that it's a combination of extreme religious fanaticism with great uh, military efficiency. Uh, and you don't often have the two combined, but you do have it here. And if, if you talk about just how ISIS actually did succeed in, uh, in those major military victories in Iraq, part of that was to do not just with the strength of ISIS, but also the weakness of the Iraqi army. Absolutely. Um, the Iraqi army is rather extraordinary. Iraqi security forces are 350,000 soldiers, 650,000 police. But the police are mostly just a, a way of creating jobs. The army, somewhat similar, but incredibly corrupt, but in corrupt in a particular way. And one Iraqi four-star general said to me, uh, I said, why is it so weak, your question? He said, corruption, corruption, corruption. What would happen? And the Americans are partly responsible for this. They uh, insisted that uh, supplying the Iraqi army should be outsourced to private companies. What happened then was that you'd have a battalion of 200 men, uh, nominal strength 600, so the colonel would be paid uh, 600 for food for 600 men, uh, but he'd only have to feed 200. Uh, and uh, this applied to everything else. So being an officer became uh, a way of making money. So as one uh, Iraqi politician put it to me, that the commanders became were all investors rather than soldiers. They paid for their jobs. You want to be a colonel in the Iraqi army, cost you about $200,000. You want to be a divisional commander, a general, cost you about $2 million. But you make money out of it uh, through these means and through checkpoints and act as customs points, stopping big vehicles, charging each one. Uh, eventually, you can make a lot of money this way. Now, the Americans are back in action militarily in Iraq, and they're arming the Kurds. Is that going to stop ISIS? It'll stop ISIS winning such easy victories because, you know, the Iraqi army, the Syrian army, the Kurds, first of all, they're just plain frightened of ISIS. I mean, these are guys who are militarily very efficient to win and tend to chop people's heads off uh, when uh, they take prisoners. So a lot of soldiers in these rather sort of ragtag armies make themselves scarce before the battle actually begins. Uh, but I think the American intervention does raise Kurdish morale, uh, although the intervention hasn't been very great. If the same thing happens on behalf of the Iraqi army, probably the same thing. The Americans would probably stop ISIS taking uh, Arbil or Baghdad. Uh, but beyond that, ISIS is you know, an organization which is not just efficient, but it's growing. The area they control probably has five or six million people in it. Uh, maybe they had five or 6,000 fighters to begin with a couple of months ago, but it's probably five and ten times that uh, number now. Certainly that's the uh, multiple that the um, uh, Iraqi uh, security forces use. Uh, so, you know, this is not something that's going to implode. It's not just a bad dream which is going to disappear overnight. Uh, Patrick Coburn, in your book, The Jihadis Return, ISIS and the New Sunni Uprising, you argue that the origin of the current crisis can be found in the days immediately after the 9-11 attacks. Can you explain that? Yeah. Uh, the 9-11 was, of course, carried out by al-Qaeda, uh, run by bin Laden. But uh, that everything to do with uh, his organization really stemmed from Saudi Arabia. He, of course, came from the Saudi elite, 15 out of 19 of the hijackers came from Saudi Arabia. Uh, American investigations said the money behind it came from private donations. Um, but from the beginning, the White House, 
U.S. was very unkeen to blame an important ally, ally like Saudi Arabia for what had happened. Uh, so they concentrated on uh, uh, Iraq, blaming Saddam Hussein, who had nothing to do with it. But uh, they were quite successful. Sixty percent of the American population at the time of 2003, at the time of the American invasion, were convinced that Saddam was somehow linked to 9-11. Absolutely no evidence for this. Uh, similarly, the Taliban, uh, in the area that bin, uh, bin Laden had been living in, uh, they went after that in Afghanistan, but not the sponsors of the Taliban, which was very openly uh, so, uh, Pakistan and the Pakistani Intelligence, Military Intelligence Service, IC, ISI. Basically, America did not want to go after two big allies, although those two big allies were really the uh, foster parents of al-Qaeda. And this enabled al-Qaeda to continue its ideas to spread. At that stage, it was much more an ideology, an idea, a way of operating, rather than a command and control organization. Uh, you know, one really shouldn't believe all this stuff of, you know, an American drone kills the deputy assistant commander of operations of al-Qaeda somewhere in Waziristan. These are quite small gangs. ISIS is really serious. These ones are not. Uh, Michael Jensen, do you share Patrick Coburn's analysis? Yes, of course. And, uh, I, sorry, go on. No, I, I agree uh, particularly about the fact that ISIS grew out of American reluctance to deal with the Saudis and the Pakistanis and also to a certain extent the Qataris and Emiratis who have been supporting ISIS. And to what extent is Western policy in both Iraq and Syria to blame? Western policy in Iraq uh, is to blame because they didn't get rid of Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki in 2010 when there was a possibility because Ayad Alawi, the head of the secular party, uh, won the majority of seats in parliament. And uh, Maliki absolutely refused to accept that he had been defeated and uh, maneuvered with Iran and to a certain extent the U.S., so that he ended up as prime minister. And then as far as Syria is concerned, the U.S. Uh, administration was always saying it was supporting moderate uh, fighters against the government, whereas these moderates were uh, aligning themselves with first the Nusra Front, which was uh, a sh an offshoot of ISIS, actually. And... Um, and eventually ISIS. So the arms and the, the trained men, which had been um, given help and training in Jordan, uh, went into the ISIS forces. Uh, and Michael, what chance do you think that Iraq's new prime minister has of uniting Iraqis if in fact he takes office? Well, first of all, Maliki hasn't given up. He wants to continue as prime minister, and he says he has the most votes as a, as a single politician. During the April election, he, he won the most, and also his faction of the movement of the Shia fundamentalist movement won the largest number of votes. Uh, the man who has been chosen to take over instead of Maliki also is, belongs to that faction. But I think um, getting the 
uh, State of Law Party, which is an offshoot of the Dawa movement, which is the Shia fundamentalist movement, is a mistake. I th the Sunnis are not going to accept in the long run to be ruled by Shia fundamentalists. And a lot of Shias doesn't, don't accept this either. Uh, Paul Gillespie, what does all of this tell us about uh, the policies that the Western powers have pursued in the region over the last decade or so? Well, following up on Patrick's uh, observations about the Saudis and Pakistan, uh, one has to say uh, great confusion and, and uh, many unintended consequences. Uh, the, the, uh, if you think about the relations with Iran, for example, and the ways in which the, the Shia uh, um, bloc in Iraq has benefited, uh, coinciding with the uh, continuing uh, and, and very structured U.S. hostility to Iran, there's great confusion there. The genesis of these movements that we've been describing, uh, the very last thing that they might have expected was that ISIS would be uh, on the verge of actually breaking up Iraq uh, as it stands. So it's an extraordinary uh, acts of folly and acts of intellectual um, um, disaster, it seems to me. And you mentioned the possibility that, uh, we're, that we're seeing possibly Iraq on the verge of breaking up. How big is what we're seeing here? Are we seeing actually a redrawing of these Sykes-Picot lines in the sand from a century ago? I think we could well be. Uh, I think we could well be. Uh, and uh, uh, the, again, pa looking at Patrick's recent work on this, uh, and it's remarkably uh, insightful, I think, uh, he's saying uh, in many ways the hostilities have gone, con gone too far. Uh, the great underestimation of ISIS, uh, the mistaken assumption that the uh, Sunni bloc would be able to, as it were, go with ISIS and then take over from them. Uh, it, may, it may have simply gone too far uh, to put it together again in, in a credible way, again, as Michael was saying. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a very, very significant set of developments. Patrick Coburn, is it, uh, is it as dramatic as that, that the, uh, that the map of the Middle East is being withdrawn as we speak? I think it is. I think you can't underestimate this in any way. Uh, and it's, ISIS is not just confined to uh, Iraq and Syria. I mean, it was causing itself um, the uh, um, Islamic State of Iraq and <clears throat> al-Sham, which means uh, Jordan, uh, Palestine, Israel, Lebanon. But actually, you know, it considers that the, the whole world owes its allegiance, and uh, more immediately the uh, Muslim world. So the idea that some people have in Europe and America, this is just Muslim on Muslim violence, I think is very short-sighted. Patrick, in your book you describe a failure on the part of the media to properly report the conflicts in Iraq and Syria and elsewhere. What do you think is the nature of that failure? I think in Syria there was a sort of romanticization of the rebels. Um, the, for the first couple of years, there was you scarcely had any mention of Saudi Arabia and Qatar and the others. Um, although it was always absurd to imagine that the absolute monarchies uh, like Saudi Arabia with a fundamentalist religion was interested in producing a secular democracy. Um, so this, the money went to uh, um, increasingly jihadi-type organizations. In Iraq, I think also uh, there was a sort of exaggeration to which 
the, about the degree to which uh, the country had been stabilized. Um, the Americans in their last year wanted to give the impression that they were coming away with a victory, and quite a lot of the American media bought this, or at least things had been pacified. Uh, but uh, things were always were pretty unstable and were eventually destabilized by uh, Maliki and by what happened in Syria. So I think that uh, the coverage in general of um, Iraq and Syria, but also Libya, uh, was very uh, naive. Look what uh, journalists used to say about the uh, Libyan rebels in uh, 2011. And look at the state of Libya now. It's uh, reduced to primeval uh, anarchy. Uh, Patrick Coburn, thank you. And Patrick Coburn's book, The Jihadis Return, ISIS and the New Sunni Uprising, is published by Orbooks, and you can order it online at orbooks.com. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. A three-day ceasefire in Gaza remains unbroken as we speak, while indirect talks in Cairo continue between delegations from Israel and the Palestinian factions. This is the second ceasefire. The first ended last week with no agreement between the two sides. The talks are focused on Palestinian demands for a lifting of the blockade of Gaza and Israel's insistence that the Palestinian group Hamas should be disarmed. Michael Jansen is in Cairo to report on the talks. Our correspondent Mark Weiss joins us from Jerusalem and Paul Gillespie is here in studio. Michael, how are these negotiations going? Well, at the moment, there's a great deal of confusion. Uh, The Palestinians are saying that uh, they will not contemplate a third ceasefire and that the talks should finish with this ceasefire, which means tomorrow night. Uh, The Palestinians are also saying that there hasn't been a great deal of progress on the main issues, um, which uh, are uh, lifting the siege and blockade of Gaza and uh, opening, allowing Palestinians to open a port, an airport in Gaza, so that they would have unimpeded access to the outside world. Uh, So far, there are reports saying that there has been a certain amount of agreement on Israeli lifting of uh, restrictions on Gaza, but the Palestinians in Gaza and here in Cairo will not accept such a, a deal. Um, and they, it has been suggested that the Israelis would accept to um, free prisoners and uh, make transfers of funds, or allow the Palestinians in the West Bank to make transfers of funds to pay uh, civil servants in Gaza who have been working under the Hamas government. And um, that the Egyptians would open the crossing at Rafah in the southern section of Gaza so that there would be goods and people passing through that. But all of this is up in the air, and uh, the one thing that the Palestinians want is a, as much a complete lifting of the siege and blockade as possible. And where the demilitarization of Gaza is concerned, or the disarming of Hamas, uh, what are the Palestinians saying about that? That's not on their agenda. And Hamas has rejected it, Islamic Jihad has rejected it, and uh, the Palestinians of the West Bank have to go along with this because they have no control over these two groups. 
The other side of the thing is that Hamas and Islamic Jihad have agreed that the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank can bring at least a thousand of its security people to close the borders of Gaza so there wouldn't be smuggling or building of tunnels. Um, and also that the, the crossings would be supervised by these security people under the Palestinian Authority. And ultimately, the Palestinian uh, consensus government, which was formed in June by Hamas and Fatah, would take over governance in Gaza so that there wouldn't be a Hamas address uh, to which Israel could object as the government of Gaza. And this government, uh, which is called a consensus government rather than a unity government, has agreed to Israel's terms for recognition, which are recognition of Israel, agreement uh, to recognize previous uh, uh, arrangements that the Palestine Liberation Organization has made with Israel, and um, to stop uh, violence. Uh, Mark Weiss, what is the Israeli government saying about the talks? Um, Israeli officials report that Israel has made four major concessions as part of an overall agreement. Israel will agree to transfer to the transfer of Hamas government salaries via a third party. Israel will agree to gradually expanding the fishing zone off the Gaza off the Gaza coast. Israel will allow construction materials to enter Gaza under close supervision. And Israel has also agreed to uh, double the number of lorries entering the Kerem Shalom crossing. To, uh, up to 600 a day. Um, these are all relatively minor um, concessions that will um, hopefully alleviate the humanitarian suffering in, in the short term, but uh, there is no agreement on um, one of the main demands of the Palestinians, um, the, uh, the construction at some future date of a sea and airport, and uh, both Israel and Egypt, uh, it appears, are uh, to be uh, are quite determined that uh, there will be no agreement on this unless there is movement on demilitarization. And uh, as we've just heard, we don't see that at the moment. What's the minimum that Israel can accept, do you think, from these talks, Mark? From the beginning, Israel made it clear that there was linkage. There was linkage between uh, demilitarization uh, and all the other issues uh, on the, uh, towards lifting the siege. So the minimum Israel uh, will be prepared to uh, yield will depend on the degree of demilitarization. Without any demilitarization, Israel will not be giving much more than the four points I've just said. As I said, relatively minor economic concessions that Israel can live with uh, if there is a future move towards disarming Hamas or ensuring that uh, no more rockets uh, uh, will be able to come into Gaza or... Uh, tunnels, new tunnels will not be dug, then Israel will, uh, we are told, make more significant concessions, uh, such as movement on the sea and airports. So could we see, perhaps, coming out of these talks, the start of a kind of a process uh, of, as you say, of linkage and of sequencing? Um, I, I think that would be a very optimistic uh, assessment of the situation. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any um, 
any indication on the Palestinian side or of movement towards uh, demilitarization. We heard before it was a non-starter, as they are concerned. And as far as Israel is concerned, if that's the case, then I think the agreements will resemble uh, pretty closely uh, earlier agreements to end the previous rounds of fighting in Gaza. Gaza very limited, uh, uh, which which unfortunately have not lasted more than a couple of years. When uh, the ceasefire ended last week, hostilities resumed, but at a, a lower intensity than before. What could we expect, do you think, Mark, if this ceasefire ends without an agreement? The Israeli position officially remains that the Operation uh, Protective Edge is not over. Um, and if there is resumption of rocket fire again, it will be met this time with a more forceful response from the Israeli military. Uh, and uh, in the worst-case scenario, Israel is also not ruling out, again, ordering in ground troops. Paul Gillespie, there's been plenty of international hand-wringing about Gaza in the last few weeks, but has it actually changed anything about Israel's position in the world or that of the Palestinians? I'm not sure that we haven't reached some kind of tipping point about Israel's um, uh, not so much position in the world as the perception of, of its actions arising from the, the disproportionality of the deaths and the destruction uh, and the military, uh, military capacities on both sides, uh, of course, multiplied by the uh, uh, media coverage of that. And I think you're getting a, a shift of, of view around Europe, uh, perhaps also in the States, amongst those who are paying close attention to it, uh, which, uh, by all accounts, the Israeli government take a lot of account of, you know, to take, take this in, in, into consideration um, how much they can actually uh, gear their behaviour to it is another matter. But it's something I think that, you know, that is, that's significant. As to the Palestinians, it seems to me that what Michael was describing there about the, the consensus government and the moves that have been taken there potentially have the promise of the kind of sequencing uh, and linkage that you're describing insofar as that the balance of forces have shifted in many ways politically and diplomatically in the region uh, against Hamas such that uh, one would have thought uh, a far more far-seeing Israelis could see a potential of doing those sequencing and, and linkages that you describe. It's certainly that should be supported internationally. And where the international community is concerned, there's some talk of uh, an international force going back into Gaza, as it was before, uh, Europeans helping to uh, police the, uh, the crossing points. If that were to happen, could we see uh, any broader kind of internationalization of the conflict? Is that at all on the cards? I think the ingredients are, are there going back to, you know, going back to particularly the European involvement that was there. But I, I think the Europeans need to up their uh, game on this. Uh, uh, I, I'd be very interested to see, you know, in detail what they have to say about the uh, main Palestinian demands, about the, the, boy, the, the blockade uh, and about the port and so on. Uh, because uh, if these could be properly uh, administered and governed and policed, uh, in such a way that cre credibility would, you know, would arise, including on the Israeli side. Well, that's that would be of a constructive piece of internationalisation. I think that has potential. Michael Jansen in Cairo. If there's no deal to be had from these talks, what are the options left for the Palestinians? Well, that is a very difficult situation to discuss. Um, 
Hamas and Islamic Jihad can renew their uh, rocket fire at Israel, which will then bring down more death and destruction in Gaza. Um, and I think that will be a very difficult choice for them. Uh, but the point is, the people in Gaza are now so angry over the extent of what uh, has been destroyed and the number of people killed uh, that they are prepared for more. And uh, so Hamas and Islamic Jihad will uh, perhaps have a window of opportunity to strike Israel and invite more, because the people in Gaza are saying that we are dying slowly now under the siege and blockade. Uh, we might as well die quickly under Israeli bombs. Michael Jansen in Cairo and Mark Weiss in Jerusalem, thank you. With just five weeks to go before Scotland's referendum on independence, the polls continue to show the no side in the lead. Yes campaigners hoped that the first televised debate of the campaign might change that. First Minister Alex Salmond was widely expected to outperform Alistair Darling, the leader of the Better Together No campaign, but most observers agreed that it was Mr Darling's night and that Mr Salmond performed badly. So what now for the Yes campaign? Is the referendum already lost or are the polls underestimating the Yes vote, as some Scottish nationalists claim? I'm joined from Edinburgh by Alex Massey, who writes for The Spectator, and from London by Irish Times London editor Mark Hennessy. And Paul Gillespie is here with me in Dublin. Alex Massey, Cassie, what went wrong for Alex Salmond last week during the debate? Well, the short answer to that is uh, just about everything. Um, not only did Alistair Darling, in my view, win uh, on the evening debate uh, in terms of the actual performance of the two men uh, during the discussion. Uh, more importantly, the media coverage in days following the debate uh, reinforced the idea that it had been a very good night for Alistair Darling the Together campaign and a very bad night for Alex Salmond and um, the nationalists in the Yes campaign. And that had a way of, I think, persuading people who may have watched the debate or who didn't watch it at all that what they might have thought was an even contest actually was a bit of a rout um, in which Darling, uh, you know, was in the, and left you know, Salmond looking as though he performed worse than perhaps he actually had um, in terms of a a dispassionate or objective analysis of the debate. But, uh, you know, the key thing uh, that came out of it, the prolonged discussion over the currency that an independent Scotland would use, and favours a formal currency union with the uh, Rump UK, uh, the uh, Conservatives and Labour and Liberal Democrat parties have all ruled that out, saying that... Um, while that might plausibly be in Scotland's interests after independence, it would not be in the interests of the United Kingdom. And therefore, it's something that they could not uh, seriously countenance. Um, now, Mr. Salmond uh, responds to that by saying it's, it's our pound and we'll keep it. Um, but it's not, in terms of the currency union, uh, something that he can actually guarantee, which then leads unionists to say, well, uh, what is your plan B? What's your second best option? And uh, moreover, it allows them to portray the Yes campaign as a, as a campaign that hasn't actually come up with the answers um, in a credible fashion that are needed to persuade Scots that um, independence is, is a journey worth undertaking. Um, you know, and it, it, it testifies, I think, to the 
to the manner in which, unlike many other independence um, battles or struggles or debates or arguments, this is an independence of choice. Uh, Scotland is not an oppressed or colonized country. Um, if independence is to prove attractive, it must pass um, a burden of proof um, that uh, is rather higher than is the case than has been the case in most other in independence movements uh, around the world. Um, it must prove beyond a reasonable doubt uh, that independence is the best way forward for Scotland. That Britain is broken, uh, and that uh, that is the is the only feasible or credible way of furthering Scottish interests and prosperity. Uh, uh, all of that, I think, is something that Salmon failed to do because of the currency question uh, in many ways. What should he have done? I mean, he, he, he refused to say what his plan B was. How should, the, how should Alex Salmon have answered that question? Well, it's a very difficult one to, to answer because none of the options are terribly attractive. Uh, I mean, a currency union would work in some ways, although, of course, it would leave the Bank of England setting Scottish interest rates. It would leave the Bank of England basically dictating uh, how much borrowing uh, a Scottish, an independent Scotland could do and so on. So it would heavily compromise um, independence, at least in the ways that independence has traditionally been viewed. Um, the plan B, which Salmon clearly favours, but he can't come out and say so, is so-called sterlingisation. In other words, Scotland would continue to use the pound. As Salmon says, it's a trade of international currency. Uh, nobody can stop Scotland using the pound in those terms, but there would be no Scottish central bank. Um, and, the, and again, the Bank of England would essentially be dictating um, interest rates and all the rest of it. Um, worse for, for Salmon is, is the fact that his fiscal commission, his group of economic advisers, which includes a couple of Nobel laureates, as he always reminds us, uh, essentially considered all the possible options for after independence and reckoned that sterlingisation was in many ways the worst of them all, not least because it would probably lead to a significant number of uh, large financial services companies in, currently based in Scotland leaving for uh, London. And since financial services account for about 15% of Scottish exports and about 9% of Scottish GDP, you know, it's not difficult to see the impact uh, that would have. Uh, the other options, of course, are joining the euro, uh, but that is extremely unpopular for all sorts of obvious reasons. Um, uh, and, and fourthly, setting up a, an independent Scottish currency, the Scottish pound, that would presumably be pegged to the pound sterling, at least initially. But that's the sort of thing that, from a political point of view, is a very difficult sell because you can easily appreciate, I think, how the unionist campaign would complain about additional transaction costs that this would impose on Scottish businesses for whom uh, England, Wales and Northern Ireland remain by a, uh, by a vast distance their most important market. Um, and, you know, in those terms, I think that would make um, uh, a separate Scottish currency a tough sell, even though it would obviously leave Scotland more independent in many ways than any of the alternatives. Now, Alex, uh, the no campaign now seems to be more confident than ever before. Are they right? Well, this is where we get to, to the, you know, the opinion polls. There are about six different opinion pollsters um, testing public opinion in Scotland on a regular basis. And they sort of divide into two camps. There are those. There are about three. There are three companies that think the no side is about eight points ahead, and there are three who think that actually the no side is about fifteen points ahead. 
So everyone agrees on that. And if you judge just purely by the opinion polls, it is extremely difficult to see how or what can change um, to, to persuade Scots to vote yes for independence, uh, given that there are now uh, you know, just five weeks or so left of campaigning. Um, now, the nationalists say that the opinion polls are wrong that they are uh, grievously underestimating the number of genuinely undecided voters and possibly not reaching enough voters, uh, particularly in poorer communities, who have uh, gotten out of the habit of voting in elections um, and perhaps previously or until the last few months and so on weren't even on the electoral roll. Um, so their argument is that the pollsters aren't actually getting a proper reflection of the electorate that will take part in the referendum. Now, obviously, this is something that is fundamentally unknowable. Um, you know, unionists will say that this is wishful thinking from the nationalists, that the, uh, whereas the nationalists will say, no, that there is a, a great grass mo grassroots movement, particularly in the housing estates, um, that shows uh, people moving to yes. If that is the case, it's something that hasn't been discovered by the polls. Um, and so, you know, it's certainly true, I think, that the no campaign is much more relaxed um, about the likely outcome now than it has been at any point this year. Um, now, that doesn't mean that they can afford to take it for granted, because, again, there is the assumption that, yes, voters will be more motivated to get to the polls come uh, referendum day. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's certainly the case that, that unionists are, are in a good mood at the moment and that there are signs of, of morale in the nationalist camp fraying a little. There was a you know, briefing against Alex Salmond in the Scottish newspapers this week, uh, briefings conducted by, um, you know, uh, by SNP members of the Scottish Parliament. You know, and other nationalist voices who are, who are sort of wondering exactly how it is and why Salmond hasn't got a better, more persuasive answer on the currency question, um, which is then which has then become a sort of um, uh, shorthand for difficulties with other parts of the Yes campaign's uh, approach. Um, Mark Hennessy, do you do, uh, do you do you agree, or, or do you think there's anything that the Yes campaign can do to close the gap? It's very difficult to see where there is a game changer uh, for them at this moment in time. The, the issue of currency keeps just coming back and back and back. And it's clear that Scots do not want risk. And it's very difficult to see how you can enter into a debate about independence where you vote yes, where you're not prepared to accept at least a certain degree of it. And uh, there, so there, there is no obvious uh, second answer. He would have given us last week. Uh, he certainly wouldn't have allowed it to, uh, to gnaw away at the campaign in the way that it has if there was an, e an easily uh, deliverable um, new answer. The difficulty the SNP have is that the weaknesses they've had during the campaign, particularly on the currency, to a lesser extent on wider economic issues, are all issues that the SNP has not been responsible for in government since they got into power, firstly the minority administration administration in 2007 and then as a majority administration in 2011 and they haven't had the ability or the realization to build up that uh, web of expertise and skills that is now clearly so lacking uh, in their campaign on the point of the opinion polls uh, you do one does have to take into account that there are predictions here that the turnout will be between 75 and 85 percent and certainly if you are talking about the top end of that then uh, the polls if they're right will end up being right by accident to a certain degree because most of them in fact all bar one are done by either internet polling or by telephone polling 
and you will get a very poor representation of the places like uh, Easterhouse in Glasgow and Drum Chapel, the really poor uh, working class and non-working class estates, and they're not going to be represented. Now, I spent the weekend in Easterhouse. I didn't detect uh, an overwhelming avalanche of people who are simply dying to get to the polls to vote uh, for independence. They certainly have been worried about the issue of uh, welfare and how welfare would be paid by an independent Scotland. And Gordon Brown, the former Labour leader, seems to have been not uh, uninfluential in getting that message across that there are issues. And that has been very uh, illustrative of the Better Together campaign. They have Project Fear, in the words of some, uh, raising legitimate questions in in the words of others, but they have raised issues and they have consistently put the uh, Yes campaign off balance and off their stride, and it is very difficult for them in that context to maintain the kind of momentum in a campaign that you need to get over the line. And we have seen in the Irish context where if you are looking for constitutional change, you need to be well ahead going into the campaign, then lose support, and then hopefully stagger over the line. The SNP are trying to do it by reverse. It may be possible, but you certainly wouldn't put money on it uh, five weeks out. Mark, uh, Alistair Darling had his own shifty moment during the debate, especially when uh, he was asked uh, what new powers would be devolved to Scotland after a no vote. Do we know the answer to that question? No, well, we don't know what has been, what would be agreed after a no vote by all of the three parties. Uh, certainly there is uh, an acceptance, uh, say the Conservatives, for instance, are talking about uh, 40% of the tax uh, income tax being devolved uh, to Holyrood. Other parties have different views. What we don't have is a formal agreed package from them and uh, after the referendum, and nor do we have an, indica- an absolute guarantee that whatever it is that they would agree, that they would implement. And that, to some extent, is the most extraordinary thing about the debate that Salmon didn't skewer uh, Alistair Darling on because he was there to be skewered on that point. Um, There is a belief, and it is not entirely unreasonable, that uh, Scotland will, if not disappear off the radar, certainly will go down the radar uh, screen after uh, the independence referendum that Westminster will begin to turn its attention on to 2015 and that they won't come through or they won't come through quickly enough with an agreed devolution offer that is sufficiently generous to bed this down. Now, people in the Liberal Democrats, for instance, will tell you that this is an issue that absolutely has to be done because the experience of Quebec is that if you promise that you're going to give extra devolution and if you then don't deliver on it, uh, then you are going to be penalised and very pen- and penalised very harshly. And there is always the residual memory in Scotland of what happened in 1970 when Alex Douglas Hume, the former uh, Tory Prime Minister, uh, urged Scots to vote against the establishment of a Scottish Assembly, saying that the Conservatives would give them uh, a lot more. And then once Margaret Thatcher got to power, they got nothing. Paul Gillespie, if you look at the campaign and the polling as it stands now, does the referendum look unwinnable for the Yes side? Uh, it looks less winnable, uh, not unwinnable. Uh, I was looking at the, uh, the Scottish Social Attitudes Survey just pu- published yesterday and uh, taking up um, uh, some of the points that we made here about the class profile of, of yes and no voting. It's a very interesting finding there that those 
people, the least well-educated people who presumably coincide with the poorer people that are being talked about in working class housing estates, uh, these are now, uh, people are making their minds up uh, more rapidly than better educated people and tending to opt more for a no than for a yes. Now, if that's true, it would contradict the expectation of the mobilisation, you know, of of, of people who don't normally vote. But I I think Mark is quite right to say that if the turnout is as high as that uh, attitude survey finds it says 75% if it goes up much beyond that the polling simply can't it can't grapple with this and I think that that's the that's the uh, uncertain factor combined with the greater power uh, of organisation on the ground particularly in in those parts of Scotland uh, the poorer parts of Scotland uh, of the yes side so that's still a a big uncertain factor but I, I, I think you know the game changing the psychological game changing hasn't really happened. Maybe it can re, uh, re, arise again during the next um, uh, the next um, uh, debates. Uh, and if there is a yes vote, uh, Paul, the United Kingdom, as we know it, obviously will be gone. What happens if there's a no vote? Is that no change? Well, the UK wouldn't be gone. It would be the rump or the residual or whatever. But it would be very much more difficult to hold it together. Uh, I think uh, if it's a no, uh, the big uncertainty there is uh, the capacity of the English majority to deliver on a devolution for Scotland, indeed a devolution all around, perhaps taking a federal form, uh, the, uh, uh, their capacity to, deli- to deliver is very uncertain and very unclear, uh, partly for the reason that they, their, their tension may go elsewhere. We have a general election next year. We have the whole issue of Europe, which feeds into this, uh, and lots, lots of other things to preoccupy uh, um, uh, majority opinion in England. Uh, if if uh, if it's a no with a, a very disappointing follow-up, uh, the question simply gets reopened, it seems to me. Because I think the one thing we can say, it's going to be quite a... Cl- if, it, if, it's a if it's a no uh, victory, it'll probably be quite close, and the effect of the turnout would be to deliver that. Alex Massey, what do you think? If Scotland votes no, is that the end of the story, back to the status quo? Uh, no, it won't be. Although, um, in a curious sense, if Scotland votes no and there is to be further constitutional change and evolution of significant additional powers to Holyrood, uh, chiefly control over all income tax, um, then the best way of achieving that, actually, is for, the, is, is for the Conservatives to win the next UK election. I think the Conservatives are more committed to uh, looking at additional powers and devolution than the Labour Party is. Um, and uh, I think uh, that it's certainly true that it, Scotland wouldn't be as, as uh, wouldn't be a first order um, priority, um, but it would still, I think, have to. You know, it, it's something that will have to be addressed at some point. You know, I'm not sure that a new Scotland bill would make it into the first Queen's speech um, after the 2015 election because a lot of work has to be done on the technicalities of how um, these things would operate, particularly devolving control of tax and some welfare, perhaps. Um, but uh, but I would expect it to, to appear in the second Queen's speech of the next Parliament, uh, assuming there's a Conservative-led um, uh, government at Westminster. Uh, if Labour wins, I think all bets are off, actually. I'm not sure that Labour is terribly committed um, 
to uh, to devolving more power. Uh, it certainly hasn't thought about it as rigorously or as coherently uh, as the Conservatives have, actually. Um, and so I think that would be, a, from a, the more powers point of view, um, uh, that would be a Labour government would be would be uh, leave things more uncertain than a Conservative government would. But at the same time, although it's true, I think that people in Scotland would like to see a beefed up Scottish Parliament. Uh, that's a fairly general type of, of feeling. When it comes down to asking people on specifics, they're, they're fairly unsure. Um, and it's also the case, of course, that the people who feel most strongly about that tend to be the people who are actually most in favour of independence. Um, you know, the, the big problem that, uh, that the Yes campaign has, and again, you know, referring to the Scottish At- Social Attitudes Survey, which is the sort of definitive um, or most widely respected um, uh, take on Scottish public attitudes, uh, you know, it found that, um, and this was polling done this summer, that only 25% of those polled thought that the Scotland's economic prospects would be improved by independence. And, um, and only 10% thought their own personal finances would be improved. And I think, in, I think that's the, those are the numbers that in some ways are, are the worst of all possible numbers for, for the Yes campaign, because I don't see how, uh, when, you, when you're talking about a sort of voluntary independence, um, an independence of choice, not compulsion um, of this sort. I don't see how, with those sort of um, economic numbers, how you can really turn it around. But, you know, it's certainly true that I think um, the the UK parties will have a debt of honour that they will have to meet after the election, after the next Westminster election, assuming there's a no vote, because they will have to return to this for exactly the reasons that have already been stated, because I think a failure to do so would um, would be seen as an act of, of some betrayal. Alex Massey in Edinburgh, Mark Hennessy in London, and Paul Gillespie here in Dublin, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find more on all our stories on irishtimes.com and you can contact us at worldview at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer James Davis and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.